Good morning, everyone. My name is Natasha, and I'll be bringing the second Bible reading, which is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and the extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written. He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is God's word. Thank you, Natasha. Uh, this is one of those uh, Bible passages that if we really do understand it and believe it, it will translate to a real difference afterwards. And so let's pray again towards that end. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, as we reflect on the churches in Macedonia and what they did, we pray, Lord, that you would use what was upon their hearts and reproduce it in our hearts, that we might respond rightly to your grace to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when was the last time you thought or talked about money? Or more specifically, when was the last time you thought about giving money away? Now, if you're here visiting us this morning, you might be thinking, oh dear, what did I get myself into? I'm coming to a church and they're talking about money. Well, let me just say, we don't often talk about money in our church. In fact, we very rarely talk about money unless it comes up in the passage we're looking at. But today, because of the season of life that our church is in, I want us as a church to think rightly about money. And I really make no apology for it. Because you see, money is not merely a material thing, a physical matter. Someone once said, we use money to buy the things we don't need from people we don't know to impress the people we don't care. But you see, money is not merely a physical, material matter. Our thinking about money, our use of money, is in fact a spiritual matter. You see, how I spend my money, where my money goes, is a window 
into my heart. How you spend your money is in fact a window into your heart. So that if you were to look at my bank statement, or if I were to look at your bank statement, I can see exactly, and you will be able to see exactly, where my treasure lies. It is very, very easy to work that out just from our bank statements. It speaks volumes to our commitment to God. It speaks volumes. And one of the marks of a Christian, a genuine Christian, one who has been changed by the cross of Jesus Christ, is generosity. One of the marks of a Christian is generosity. Generous giving because we have experienced the generous God. Recently, as a family in our household, around the dinner table, we did talk about money and giving. Yvonne and myself, we revisited our giving not, not too long ago, a couple months ago. But at this dinner table, around dinner, we talked to our kids about their giving, about giving of our kids. Not that we want to give them away, but their own giving to the Lord. I mean, they don't get much, they're kids. In fact, they're just teenagers. But we said, you get pocket money. We get, you get pocket money, and we wanted them to start giving a portion of that as well. Why? I mean, we can just give them more so that they can give something else, couldn't we? But because it's a spiritual matter. It is a spiritual matter, and we wanted them, even as teenagers, to have the spiritual discipline of giving. That was around our family dinner. But now, around our church family. So just imagine, a bit like at our family dinner, we're not going to eat now, but our family dinner. Yvonne normally sits towards my right, Caleb on the left, and Essa over there, and Ethan over there. But this is our church family, so together... Let's have that discussion too. What does our giving look like? What does it reveal about our own hearts? Because what type of church do we want to be? Well, let me describe the type of churches we do not want to be. One, we do not want to be a church where anyone thinks, because I'm not as well off as the person sitting next to me. I mean, I saw them drive in the car park. They drove a pretty nice car, and I'm only driving a Toyota. I can just leave the giving to them. We must not be a church like that because, you see, giving is a spiritual discipline. It is about your own heart, not someone else's. That is their business. It is about your own heart. Second, we don't want to be a church where we only give when we're pressured to give. In fact, I'm always very careful never to apply pressure nor guilt. It's why we don't often speak about money so that there could not even be that perception. But you see, as we look at this passage, I want all of us to be impacted by the Word of God. Third, we do not want to be a church where we only give begrudgingly, that that is our attitude towards money that flows out of our bank account. I mean, that's certainly not good for our heart. It reveals something about our heart. And in fact, such giving wouldn't be very generous anyway. And fourth, we don't want to be a church where we only give out of duty, where we just have to, or may to, or we just need to. Instead, we want to be a church just like the one we read of, the one the Apostle Paul spoke of, 
the Macedonian churches. Because how did they give? What was their attitude? They were thankful to God. And they wanted to. Not pressured to, not made to, but they wanted to. And it is our hope, it is my hope, that what was upon their heart is reflected in our hearts as well. And that this passage would inspire us, would change us, would motivate us, embolden us to be far more generous than we are. Now again, I need to say once again, if you are a visitor, if you're not yet a Christian, I do not want you to feel at all that this church wants anything from you. We do not want your money one bit, not one cent. In fact, we want you to hear that God has everything for you. God wants you to know of his love in Jesus Christ. But what I do hope for you if you're visiting us and you're not yet a Christian, you're sort of sitting there and we're having our family dinner and you're getting to listen in on how we talk and think about money. And hopefully that will be something that would excite you by what motivates us as we talk about money. And so let's look at this passage. What can we learn from the Macedonian churches? Well, the first point, they gave to God first. Their giving was first to God, generously, sacrificially, and even beyond their ability. Because what we see here is a church that gave despite their circumstances. You see, when we hear about the Macedonian churches, we're not meant to think this was the Turak of the ancient world or this was the middle-class Surrey Hills of the ancient world. When we hear of the Macedonian churches, we're meant to think the poorer places, the poorer suburbs, the poorer cities of the ancient world. A bit like, actually I shouldn't say, but the places of high unemployment where there is poverty, where it's difficult for families to make ends meet. And not only that, we're told here the Macedonian churches, they experienced severe trial. They were under persecution. They experienced the affliction of life. But yet, they did not think, they did not think, which is easy for us to think, I'll just start giving when I'm out of poverty. They did not think that. I'll just start giving when the affliction is over. They did not think that. But I wonder how easy it is for us today to think that way. I'll only start being generous when I get my full-time job. I've just got a casual job now. That's okay. That's all for me. But when I get my full-time job, then I'll start being generous. Or I'll start being generous when I get that promotion. Not yet, but later. But you see, it's the reality is that this is a spiritual discipline. And if I'm not spiritually disciplined with little there is no way I'm going to be spiritually disciplined with much. But you see, the Macedonian churches, they said, even in my poverty, though we don't have much, we want to give, we want to be generous. You see what was revealed in their own hearts? It's a bit like the story Jesus told about that widow who came along to the temple. You know that story? Jesus was there with his disciples, and just picture it, many rich People were coming to the temple. The treasury box was there, and they were putting in their money. Not coins, you know, they're, they're, that's not much, but notes. Wards of cash into the treasury box. You know, and they were really proud. Look at how much we can give. And then along came a widow. 
standing there, looking very poor. And she could only manage to put in all she had, two little coins. And we're told in Mark 12, two little coins that are worth very little. Very little. But what did Jesus say? What was his assessment? She gave more. Those others they gave out of their wealth. So they gave so much, all those wads of cash, but it did not make a dent in their side pocket. Their wallets did not change. Their lifestyle did not change. No sacrifice whatsoever. But she gave out of her poverty. She gave all that she had to live on. And so when I hear, sometimes I hear Christians you know, discussing genuinely, should we give pre-tax or after-tax? Have you heard of that type of discussion? Well, consider the story of the widow and you make your decision. Which means if you have little or if you have much, if life is easy or if life is tough, you can still be generous. Generosity doesn't begin sometime in the future. It is despite my circumstances. When we were at Bible college, we didn't have very much. I didn't work, and Yvonne was busy having kids. So we had two boys while we were at Bible college. No income apart from what the government gave us. But this principle was still true for us then. Now, I share this with a little bit of caution, not to you know, blow our own trumpets or anything, but we still try to give. But there were small, paltry offerings but we still wanted to be as generous as we could with the little we had. And so that's what we see with the Macedonians. Look at verses 2 and 3. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability now, don't you love that last part of that verse? Even beyond their ability. But they were poor. They were under affliction. And I wonder whether that can be said. You know, we're at the dinner table. We're having a discussion about money. I wonder whether that can be said about our church family. That we're in fact giving beyond our ability. That we actually feel the stretch once we give. We feel that we, we cannot do or buy what we really wanted because we felt the stretch. Alistair Begg, a Scottish pastor who serves in the US in Cleveland, he said, Generosity means we feel the squeeze so others don't feel the pinch. I just like that. We feel the squeeze so others don't feel the pinch. As a younger Christian, I had to learn generosity and learned from those who were older than me. And I remember one older Christian, when I was a younger Christian, he would forego a nicer holiday for a cheaper holiday and he would give the difference away. That's wonderful, wasn't it? Wonderful. Now, I don't mean that we cannot enjoy nice holidays. Of course, we receive it with thankfulness. But later this year... We're going to forego five-star hotel for a five-million-star hotel camping. That's going to be an experience. We'll see how that goes. But anyway, so the Macedonians, they were giving despite their circumstances. And they gave first to God. 
But not only that, look at their attitude. They count it a privilege to give. There's no sense of giving begrudgingly. Look at verses 3 and 4. Entirely on their own, their own initiative. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. They heard the need of those Christians in Jerusalem and they were begging Paul, give us that privilege too so that we can share, so that we can give. Because what happens when we normally beg? We beg to get. But they're begging to give. But why is it a privilege to give? Because it is partaking in God's work in this world. And that is one of great joy because my small little contribution to God could make an eternal difference. It could make an eternal impact as I support those who are training for ministry, for example, ministry apprenticeship, as I support Bible teachers, as I support missionaries, as I support and care for the poor. It is a privilege because... God, actually, you have to hear this, and we all have to hear this. It's a privilege because God does not need our money. God does not need it one bit. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. He doesn't need what we give him because it all belongs to him already. But if God can use the little that I give for the good of his church, for the building of his people, for the advancement of the kingdom... What a privilege. What a privilege. But the Macedonian churches, they didn't just give their money. Do you see it there? They gave themselves first to God. And so they've already said to God, God, you have all of me already. All that is, of, of, that is mine belongs to you. My heart is yours. My devotion, my loyalty, my love is yours already. And of course, if I've given my life to you, my wallet and my purse would follow. Now, in our church, we don't pass the, the offering bag around anymore. But it's as though, I heard it once described, if you're giving yourself to God first, you're, you're jumping into the offering bag yourself. And if you jump in yourself, then your purse, your wallet will follow. And so the Macedonian churches, they gave themselves to God first. Not just 10% to God and then left 90% for their leisure. Not just 50% of their efforts to God. Not 80% of their devotion to God. Not just giving God, hey God, I'll give you time, but I'll keep the money. But they gave their whole lives to God. Everything that they had because everything belonged to God. You see, it must never be the case where the hand gives but the heart holds back. God does not want that, as though God really needs it and is desperate. Not at all. Look at verse 5. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. And if that is true for us, then it makes sense that Whatever we give to God as a principle must be our first fruits to God before everything else. 
before our bills, before our expenses, our first fruits to God. And that's why, you know, electronic giving, that's a newish thing, but it's not a bad thing. As soon as my income comes in, my giving goes out before I pay even my home loan. First fruits to God. God wants the best. He doesn't want our scraps, our leftovers, the surplus of our disposable income. Not at all. First fruits. A few years ago, a lady called me and asked if she could leave part of her estate to our church. She asked me, could, could I do that? Now, I was shocked, surprised. I said, well, of course. Now, obviously, she loves our church. She stands behind our mission. She wants the church to grow. And she wants her to include our church in her will. And so I got her in touch with our treasurer. But why would anyone do that? Because who do we normally leave our money to? Our estate to? Our children. I'm sure she will as well. But it does raise the question, do they really need it all? So why would she do that? Because it's a privilege. She's giving herself to the Lord first. But now, as we move on, we have to ask, why were the Macedonian churches so wonderfully generous? What was it that motivated them, even beyond their ability? They begged for the privilege. It wasn't willpower. It wasn't because we want to look good, we want to be good people. It wasn't certainly because they were forced to. You see, Christian giving is a response to the grace of God. The only right motivation of Christian giving, it is a response. Because as big, as generous, as extraordinary our giving may be, God remains the greatest giver. God remains the most generous one. And in the key verse of this passage, it's a beautiful summary of the gospel. And I really love this verse. It's so beautiful. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes... It's for you. He's got the vastness of the universe, but for you, he came for you. He became poor, we read, so that, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, what we hear described here is that no one can ever match the generosity of Jesus. No one can ever match it. Because if you talk about wealth and riches, Jesus had it all. No one can be any wealthier than Jesus. I mean, part of the, we've got a king now, King Charles III. Part of his inheritance as a monarch, as a sovereign, was that he also inherited all the swans in the UK, all the dolphins around the coast, all the sturgeons and the whales around the UK. That was part of his inheritance. But he's got nothing on Jesus. You know, Jesus, in a sense, says to him, I see your dolphins. And I raise you a galaxy. Got nothing on me. You see, the wealth of Jesus extends not just to planet Earth, our solar system, the galaxy, the universe, heaven itself, the glory of heaven. And what did Jesus do? For your sake, for your good, for your salvation, Jesus took on 
poverty by entering into this world as a human being. He experienced impoverishment of life itself. Remember the words of Jesus. It was quite confronting. He said, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That is poverty. Even the animals had it better than him. And he experienced the poverty of the cross, stripped of any honour, stripped of dignity, stripped of humanity, crucified like the worst of criminals. I mean, you can't move any higher than Jesus in wealth. And you cannot move any lower than Jesus in poverty. And he did that for our sake. But why? We read on, so that through his poverty... Through his poverty, you might become rich. Rich in the things that matter. You see, we who are Christians, we often forget this as we're climbing the ladder, the corporate ladder, trying to attain and possess more. We often forget this, but Christians are the richest people in the world. You who are Christians, you are the richest people in the world even if you drive a Toyota like me. You see, we possess the things that money cannot buy. You cannot buy forgiveness of sins, but we have it. You cannot buy redemption of the soul, but we have it. You cannot buy eternal life. You cannot buy resurrection life. You cannot buy entry into heaven, but we have it. Christians are the richest people in this world. Last Thursday, I visited a a member of our church who's who's probably on his last leg, on his deathbed. He'll eventually go away, just like the way he came, like all of us. Naked we came, naked we will leave. But for the Christian, we always leave rich, possessing that which even death itself cannot snatch. And that's true for that man. And so why were the Macedonian churches so generous? It was in response to the grace of God. And unless we understand the generosity of God first and foremost, we'll never be generous ourselves. We have to understand that first and allow that to shape our hearts. And then we'll do the crazy thing, and that is we'll give even beyond our ability. And so the Christian giving... First to God, a response to the grace of God. And so how are we to rightly respond? Well, Paul now gives a challenging one. It's an inspiring one. Look at verse 7. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, you excel in all these things of Christian life. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. You see, Christian giving is one where we have to excel in Christian giving. Just as I've received grace, I pass it on. Which means Christian giving can never be mediocre. Christian giving can never be given begrudgingly. Christian giving can never be stingy. Christian giving can never be, I give my time but not my money. 
we are to excel in the grace of giving. And it begins in the heart that is captured by the grace of God. But of course it's not a competition. We have to remember that. It's a matter of our heart. In our growth group this week when we looked at this passage, we heard stories of how some churches, we don't have it in in our church, but some churches in their news bulletin, they'll put a list of the top givers from the last week. Not sure if you've been to a church like that. We heard a few had that experience. Just imagine that. You come to church, a bulletin. Oh, forget the Bible passage or the memory text. Who's given the most? Now, I cannot see that being helpful in any way because our hearts can be easily fooled and deceived. But yet we are to excel. Excel in such a way that the right hand does and the left hand does not know in response to the grace of God. Well, now I thought I'd spend some time just giving and outlining some quick principles. Firstly, where do we give? We talked about giving. We know that we need to give. Where do we give? Well, the Bible tells us really clearly. The apostles teach us very clearly. It is important and essential in Christian giving to prioritize giving to your local church first. Now, I wonder whether some of you might be thinking, well, that's a bit self-serving. You know, you're the minister and you're telling us to give to the church. Well, let me encourage you to not think that way, but just to consider what Scripture says. You see, this teaching applies to me just as much as it does to you. Because even in our family, the church gets the biggest portion of our giving. We give to the church the biggest portion. Because, you see, the local church is central to God's mission in this world. The church is the means by which the gospel goes out into this world. The church is the means by which God's people are built up and nurtured to live in this world. And so you cannot have a world without churches, which means churches must be supported so that we do mission together. The local church is central to God's mission in this world. And so those of us who think or say, I don't want to give to my church, I'd rather support world mission and the missionaries out there. Well, perhaps it means if it is a church you do not want to support, then you're at the wrong church. I'll say that again. If you think, I don't want to support my local church, I'd rather support outside, well, if you belong to such a church in this season, in the next season, then you're probably at the wrong church. So you want to belong to a church you want to support. Otherwise, it's disobedience. Or those who think or say, my church has enough so I can give elsewhere. But if everyone thinks like that, the ministry cannot grow but shrink. But I do want to say this. I want you to hear this. In the kindness and generosity of this church, each month at our board meeting, we get the profit and loss statement. We look at the numbers. I'm not really looking at the numbers. I'm just looking at the colors. Is it a green month or a red month? Do we need to shrink, cut our ministries, our staffing, or can we grow? When I first started here as, as the assistant minister over 10 years ago, this church wasn't able to, 
support me, so they needed outside funding to support me. But over those 10 years, in the generosity of this church, we have grown. We have enabled more ministry to happen, more staff members to join our team, and increasing of our missions giving. You see, in our church family, 12% of our income, our offering, is given to mission, local and global mission. And it's a privilege that we can give this coming year about 75000 away. And so where do I give? Local church as a priority. Mission, of course, we need to support mission. And we go above and beyond. And of course, we also support those in need, inside the household of God and outside. Now, the second question, second principle, how much? Well, the principle is it needs to be proportional and sacrificial. Now, perhaps a pastoral word first before we move on. If you are struggling financially, you can really not make ends meet, then you need to seek us for help. We've got a carer's team established to help out, so do speak out. But for the rest of us, our giving is proportional to what God has entrusted to us. They, it all belongs to God. We're merely managers, stewards, not owners. And so what will look generous for a student will look very different to what is generous to those on 200000 a year. You see verse 12, the principle is there. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. And so how much? We haven't come down to a percentage or a number. Well, you may have heard about the tithing idea, 10%. We don't talk much about tithing because it was really an Old Testament law that we don't see mandated in the New Testament. The New Testament is silent on it. However, though it is not a law in the New Testament, 10% is a good starting point. It's a good starting point. It's a good place to start. It's a wonderful guide. However, the principle, remember, it needs to be sacrificial. Under law, 10%, under grace, you have to wonder how much more. The sky's the limit. But the shape of generosity is what we see in this passage. What's the attitude? What's the shape? It's the shape of the cross. The shape of sacrifice the shape of Jesus who was rich, who became poor for us. And so I want us all to reflect in my own giving, in your own giving. Is it sacrificial? Does it look like the shape of the cross? If I give, does it actually make a dent in my pocket? Or is it always only out of my discretionary fund, never my first fruits? Is it always within my comfort zone so that nothing changes in my lifestyle? If that's the case, then I don't think we've really understood proportional yet sacrificial giving. You see, when Jesus carried the cross, it wasn't a branch, it wasn't a twig, it was a burden. He denied himself everything for our sake. Alistair Begg again, he said, We deny some of our wants to help with another's need. We forego a legitimate want to supply a legitimate need. John Wesley, he said, Give all you can, 
C.S. Lewis, he says, give till it hurts. John Wesley died penniless. But is he rich now? For sure. C.S. Lewis, his private charities he left behind are huge. He will not accept money from the books he wrote, grouped tape letters, mere Christianity, but had them given away to orphans and widows. He gave away two-thirds of his income. Proportional, yet sacrificial. And finally, with what attitude? Cheerful and thankful. Cheerful because it is more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, just think about it. Have you ever seen an unhappy, generous person? They're joyful. They're cheerful. The principle is clear. Whatever that might, amount might be, 5%, 10%, 20%, 30 80%, it's a matter of your heart before the Lord. I do not want to know, nor do I, I don't want to know at all. It's a matter of your heart. Verse 7 of chapter 9 we read, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's the type of giver we all want to be. And of course, thankful. Thankful for the privilege that we can be involved in the mission of God. Alistair Begg again, he said, Your money can make you an overseas missionary without ever leaving your hometown, an evangelist without ever mounting a platform, a broadcaster without ever entering a studio, a Bible teacher without ever writing a book. By our giving, we partake, we share with those who go. It's a privilege. Cheerful and thankful. And so just imagine again, we're still around the dinner table. We're almost done with our talk about money. I think God has blessed us as a church in many generous ways. And we have been a generous church. We've never been below budget every single year since I've started. But just imagine, what if our giving was stretched even more? Like the Macedonian churches. And the wonderful thing is we're not doing it alone, but we're doing it together. And we're going together beyond our ability. Imagine the difference it would make. It's just exciting to consider. I think it's exciting. If our generosity really reflects the generosity of God, there will be a rich harvest one day in heaven. I mean, for the apostle Paul to do his work, you know what, who had to support him? Phoebe. Barnabas, the great encourager, he, he sold his estate later before the apostles' feet to support the first churches. The English Bible, William Tyndale, for him to translate the English Bible, he was supported by a businessman, Humphrey Montmouth. In the 1700s, Amazing Grace, John Newton, how did he come to write that song? He was supported financially by a businessman, John Thornton. Late in the 1800s, the start of the SIM mission organization, Sudan, Interior Mission. For that to happen, who supported him? Many, but one, Mary Jones, gave $300. Now, over 4,000 missionaries in 70 nations. And of course, those who invested in this church over 100 years ago, they're reaping a harvest. And so imagine the difference that would make. 
Now, dinner is over. The discussion is over. Proportional yet sacrificial. Thankful yet cheerful. May our hearts reflect the hearts of the Macedonian churches. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we know and see that you are the one generous God, the most generous of all, who gave your Son, who was rich but became poor, so that through his poverty we might have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, that we might be rich. We pray, Lord, that you'll reproduce that in our hearts, in our own giving. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.